Hebrews chapter 9, 15 to 23 in this hour. Hebrews 9, 15 to 23. I'd like to begin reading back at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they, which are called, might receive promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people saying, This is the blood of the testament, which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And almost all things are, by the law, purged with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. We'll stop right there. Father, we pray that your hand would be upon us in this hour. There is such a deliberate sense of developed logic in the presentation of this section concerning the superiority of Christ, that it's easy for our minds to drift. And we pray today that you would help us to see the blessed development before us in the verses at hand concerning the perfections of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We've already spent a good amount of time this morning with a Christological emphasis that has been to the benefit of our soul. It has been striking to my soul that so much of our music today was so specifically directed in some of the things of which we are preaching and teaching in this day. And now we give pause before you in prayer that the Spirit of God might be our teacher in this marvelous section of the Word of God, that there would be good understanding among your people concerning the biblical text, and that more than understanding it, there would be a rejoicing and a living that would follow to your honor and your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. 
Amen. Some 20 plus years ago, at the Ohio local church that I served, a teen group met on the church property for an all-nighter. If you don't know what that means, good for you. Tents were erected near the small woods at the back of the property, and the first game to be played that night was capture the flag. Some of the younger junior hires, the guys, really got into it, bringing and dressing up in fatigues and carrying small tactical flashlights for the playing of capture the flag. I remember because it was uh, very close to some major tragic events in the United States of America, I remember being a little bit concerned with those teenage guys running around in fatigues that some nosy neighbor might get the idea that we were training a militia. <laughs> because back in that day, there was this thought that, you know, all Baptists are like weirdos. That part's true. But nonetheless, militia's not all true. Imagine with me one of those boys dressed up in fatigues and carrying their tactical flashlight joining the United States Army and eventually being deployed to battle in a war zone. No one would argue, no one would argue that the boys in the church woods were serving their country while playing capture the flag on the church property, as was the soldier who was indeed officially deployed. Just because they were similarly dressed and active at night, there is really no comparison. The service of the soldier is superior in relationship, superior in functionality, superior in purpose, and superior in effect. Likewise, the actual service of Christ at the cross and now in heaven has no equal in the foreshadowing representations of ritual established under the law. It is indeed the Lord over the law every time and in every way. Playing soldier is not equal to being an actual soldier. Old Testament priestly ritual is not equal to the reality that is found in Jesus Christ. Now that is the basic thought of which there is a phenomenal sense of precise and well-developed rationale around which you and I are to get our minds around to the glory of our Savior. But the point of the text has to do with the superiority and the reality of service that has been provided and is being provided in Jesus Christ. But the highly developed contrast between the Old Testament law and the New Testament Lord continues on in this section as the Holy Spirit presses to leave no rational stone unturned. The phrase, verse 15, and for this cause, connects the matters now addressed 
to the former presentation and develops them deliberately in relationship to the death of Christ at the cross. And so now, as we continue in the text, we find three things. One, the declaration of the mediator, verse 15. Number two, the death of the testator, verses 16 and 17. And number three, the dedication of related things, verses 18 to 23. Let's begin with the declaration of the mediator, which, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Covenant or New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions, transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive promise of eternal inheritance. The declaration of the mediator, Jesus Christ, verse 15. The sacrificial death of Christ is the basis upon which he is declared to be the arbitrator of a new and better covenant. The words, he is the mediator of a new covenant, and then notice, by means of death. It is quite common for us to declare, and it is very right for us to declare, that the Lord Jesus died for our sins. True and the usual. We can also say what John the Baptist said, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. True, and commonly stated as true. But neither of those truths are the point of emphasis in verse 15. Verse 15 does not say exactly that Jesus Christ died for our sins, although it's clear he did. Verse 15 does not say that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, although we have often taught you the precise way in which he did. That is not, however, the emphasis here. The declaration that the Lord Jesus is the capital M mediator of the new covenant by means of death is focused here upon the transgressions of those individuals who lived under the Old Testament law. As a matter of fact, people like Moses, David, Daniel were saved in the age before the advent of Christ. God was able to save them in their earthly lifetime by looking to the certainty of the promise we know to be fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ for their sin. God was able to save them back then on the basis of the certainty of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for their sin as a finished work in the eternal decree of redemption. The work at the cross was certain and fixed at the point in which God determined it before the world began. Now, in modern vernacular, we might just simply say that the death of Christ was retroactive. When Christ died historically, that death specifically looked backward to cover 
quote from verse 15, transgressions that were under the first covenant. Biblically speaking, all saved people before the law of God was given, think Abraham, saved people after the law was given, think Moses, David, and Daniel, along with all others outside the law, like you and me, are identified in verse 15 as they which are called. What am I saying? I'm saying that verse 15 is very narrow in the focus of the death of Christ concerning the transgressions that were under the first covenant, under the law. But then I'm saying that the phrase, they which are called, not only includes people before the law and under the law and after the law, but forevermore. And this calling of God's people is unto, end of verse 15, eternal inheritance. Unto eternal life. Eternal inheritance. On the human side of salvation, we speak of Abraham's faith. We speak of Moses' faith. We speak of Daniel's faith. We speak of, of our faith in Christ. On the God side of things, the Father effectively called believing sinners to himself before the world began. The basis of that calling is the cross and death of Christ in real time. The actualization of that calling individually comes at the moment of conversion. Now, think with me. Uh, we, as uh, born-again Baptists, love the truth of once saved, always saved. And we certainly don't want to give up on that. Once saved, always saved. But it is important that when we talk about salvation from a theological perspective, that we teach the four or the three facets of salvation, namely, I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. Now, you are familiar in this congregation with those three because we often speak of them. But now I want to talk about the same subject, salvation, and not talk about once saved, always saved, and not talk about the three, I am saved, I will, I'm being saved, I will be saved, but now I want to talk about the five. You ready for the five senses of your salvation as indicated clearly in this text? Here we are. Number one, there is a real sense of your salvation in eternity past when God made up his mind about you. There is a real sense of your salvation at the cross when Jesus died, about 30 A.D. For me, there is a real sense of my salvation in May of 1960 or in the day in which you placed your faith in the Lord. And then there is a greater realization of my salvation as you and I progress in the Lord. And then ultimately, in the day of Christ, when we receive our resurrected bodies, the finality of our salvation. So question, when was I saved? 
I was saved in the mind of God before there ever was a blade of grass. I was saved in the mind of Christ when he died on the cross. I was saved in May of 1960 when I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my own personal Lord and Savior. I'm being saved today as uh, the Lord sanctifies uh, the individual that he has saved. And I shall be saved and have a perfect body and perfect soul before the Lord forever and ever because God is such a great Savior. So I can talk about salvation as one thing, I can talk about salvation as three things, and now I'm talking about salvation as five things. And all you should get out of that is not that there's one and three and five, and, oh, it's all confusing. No, it's not confusing. Just know this. God is a great Savior, the very one you need. The very one you need. And that is the point that's being made in verse 15 concerning the declaration of the capital M, Meteor, the Christ, the one that goes between God and man. The declaration of Christ as the ultimate mediator is directly related to his death on the cross. That is true for us. That is true for Old Testament saints living in the Old Testament era. And so when I think back about Abraham and Job before the law, I can say they were saved by faith. When I think about Moses and David, I can, I can think about them as being saved by faith. And when I think about me or I think about you, I can think about us as being saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Saved by faith is the way of God in every generation. And yet the uniqueness is it all relates to the historical reality of the death of, cross, uh, the death of Christ on the cross at Calvary. It is a marvelous connection. And on that basis, everyone before the law, everyone under the law, everyone after the law that is called by God, past, present, future, receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That's verse 15. That's just one verse in this text. Secondly, verses 16 and 17 pick up on the thought of inheritance of the Spirit when prompted to engage in the legal logic concerning death of the testator. Now, you know about this. As a simple matter, it's reflected even in our own system of law. Again, 16, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whenever someone has made a last will and testament, one thing is for sure. The details and the disposition of the will are not put into full effect until the person who made the will dies. Here's the point. Jesus died. His will for Israel is now in full effect. His will is called the New Testament. The New Testament in his blood. Christ died to put into force an effect the new covenant for the Jewish nation. So you have in verse 15 
a declaration of the mediator. You have then in verses 16 and 17 a clear statement of the death of the heavenly testator, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 18 to 23, you have an additional truth, and not only did the death of Christ put into effect the will of God for Israel, but his death also satisfied the demand of God for blood regarding forgiveness. We now speak of the dedication and the consecration by blood. Again, verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged, cleansed before God ritualistically with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. Whenever someone was involved in the Old Testament sacrificial system, which involved animal blood as prescribed by God, applied under the Old Covenant, it included, the record included, the application of that blood upon the document itself. Verse 19 says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of, a, of calves and goats and sprinkled both the book, the book, the book, what? The Bible. At least as much of it had been written at that point in time, and so the blood, ritualistically, was sprinkled on uh, the written words of the covenant. And verse 19 also tells us that the blood was, was sprinkled on uh, the uh, ancient congregation of people. And verse 21 tells us that the blood was also sprinkled on uh, the tabernacle, where God's people would meet with God. And verse 21 also tells us that the blood of the Old Testament covenant was, was sprinkled upon uh, the priestly vessels of service. And there was so much blood here and so much blood there and so much blood over there and so much blood around that verse uh, 22 says, and almost everything, almost everything, almost all things are under the law or by the law purged with blood and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Uh, the only sense of, of forgiveness before God under the law came by trusting God and his promise concerning the future and by the enactment and application of blood under the law. So much so that verse 20 says that Moses at that time, in that era of time, said to Israel on that occasion, this is the blood of the testament God has commanded you. Those words ought to ring with a heavy-handed sense of familiarity in my life and yours because of what Jesus said in the upper room. 
But Moses said, as quoted in verse 20, this is the blood of the testament, covenant, which God hath enjoined unto you. Under the law, that ritualistic pattern prescribed involved the consecration, the dedication of almost all things by animal blood as an outward sign of cleansing. Two thoughts dominate the verses 18 to 22. First, the historical reality was that blood of sacrificial animals as applied, inaugurated the ritual system under the law. The covenant was initiated, or the covenant was inaugurated by means of application of blood. And the second thought is, is that without the perpetuation of shedding of blood and applying of sacrificial blood, there was no sense in the Old Testament era in which a saint would have release from sin. And so the two key words that come out of the Old Testament pattern under the law is that the blood was used to inaugurate the way of God as enjoined, is the word we find in our English text at verse 20. The inauguration of the way enjoined, and secondly, the perpetuation of dealing with sins as committed. The word remission, as found in the text, the word remission literally speaks of a sending away. There is, without blood, no sending away. No sending away as God has designed the sending of way. Well, of course, the kids singing Sunday school is gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. G-O-N-E, gone. A sending away. And this sending away was, by nature of prescription under the law, a pouring out or the shedding of blood in sacrifice to God. The ritual was a perpetual pouring out and sacrifice of blood unto God. And in that we see the inauguration of God's provision in the earthly tabernacle and we see the perpetuation of cleansing in its operation. Two things again. By blood you see the inauguration of God's provision in the earthly tabernacle and you see the perpetuation of cleansing in its operation. Now, with the thoughts of inauguration and perpetuation by the cleansing of blood, we pick up at the beginning at verse 23. It was, therefore, necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, stop right there. It was necessary that the actual operations before God's throne, as depicted in ritual on the earth in the earthly tabernacle, 
it was necessary that the earthly tabernacle should in kind depict the reality upon which God operates. And thereby, the depiction on the earth in the Old Testament tabernacle uh, was a bloody application of sacrificial animals so that it would picture, so that it would, it would uh, prescribe, as it were, uh, the way that the actual operation is going to take place in heaven. And so there was blood sprinkled on, uh, on the words of the Book of the Covenant. There was blood sprinkled on the people themselves. Uh, in the day of inauguration, uh, there was the day uh, the blood sprinkled on the tabernacle tent, and there was blood uh, sprinkled on everything that the priests hardly touched and used in operation of priestly service. Verse 23 says, It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Those are the things purified on earth and ritualistic representation under the law. But the heavenly things themselves, see it? The heavenly things themselves, see it? The heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, or we would say than those. In other words, the ritualistic picture the patterned picture established on the earth is by no means to be compared with the reality of heavenly servant service taking place by the Lord Jesus Christ and his own bloodshed. And because of the bloodshed of Jesus Christ, he has inaugurated, we'll see it in the 10th chapter, a new and living way. He has inaugurated the new way unto God, the open way unto God, the, the curtain ripped and the room open way unto God. Nothing preventing my soul and the Savior. Because of the inauguration of Jesus Christ by blood at the cross. And then you talk about the perpetuation and operation of forgiveness if a believer confesses their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them their sins and, and, and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. When you talk about inauguration of the way unto God, it is little wonder that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. And then that new way of inauguration includes an ongoing perpetuation, an ongoing perpetuation for the ever-present cleansing of the people of God in real time, here and now. Therefore, we've been told back in chapter 7, he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. He's there, and we're here, but we have the ongoing reality of a perpetuation of forgiveness of sins as the people of God, because of the bloody application of the one-time death of Jesus Christ for our sins in the whole.
thus we sing, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. I trust it is well in your soul as it is well in my soul. I'd like us to look in conclusion this morning and in comparison to 920, where Moses is quoted as saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. I'd like to compare that with what Jesus said in the upper room, Matthew 26 and verse 28 in conclusion this morning. Matthew 26 and verse 28. Under the law, God prescribed the terms and importance of sacrificial bloodshed and remission. But in the Lord, God has fulfilled his righteous demand for sacrificial bloodshed and remission. So look at 2628. Jesus in the upper room. Let's just back up to 2626. And as they were eating... Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. His body was broken. None of his bones were broken, Lydia. But his body was broken. Nonetheless, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, said, Drink ye all, or all of you drink it. Don't drink all of it in the sense I don't let a little drop be the remaining there. Hence you go to the Catholic Mass and the priest takes the chalice and he has this special white towel and he wipes out the inside of that thing as if he's been polishing it for 6,000 years uh, because the fact is that the thought is, is you can't leave any of the blood of Christ behind to fall on the floor. Goof. Just Goof. The reality is all people ought to drink of this blood, the blood of Christ. Drink ye all, every one of you, of it. Then, 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament. Declaration of the mediator, Jesus. Death of the testator, he died for our sins. The dedication and consecration that comes by nature of blood. Jesus said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission. Same word as in Hebrews. For the forgiveness of sins, for the perpetuation of forgiveness of sins. The law was but a shadow. The Lord is the reality. Christ has inaugurated the way unto God by his own blood. And that blood, shed once for all, perpetuates our actual cleansing from all sin. That which the Old Testament law foreshadowed, the New Testament Lord 
fulfilled. And that's why, as God's people, we talk about Jesus. Father, help us this morning to keep our minds clear and our mouths pure as we would speak of the glories of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May insight into some of the prescribed logic and rationale of Hebrews 9 delight our minds, delight our hearts in reflection of Christ. And may in this week we be faithful to you, for, O oh God, you have surely been faithful to us. We praise you. We thank you this morning. In Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen.